Can a marriage survive infidelity? We dig deep to explore this thorny question. Join me, Jean-Claude Chalmet, and founder of The Place Retreats and a featured columnist for The Times, with Amy Cooper and Louise Daniels, on The Place Retreats podcast. Search Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite Android app. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome again to your next episode where we promise to work through all the issues coming up for you as you burst into your 40s, 50s and beyond. I'm Amy. And I'm Louise. And today we're talking to Jean-Claude Chalmay. Jean-Claude is a globally renowned psychotherapist and author. Um, he's a featured columnist at The Times and a founder of The Place Retreats in Bali. And we're at The Place London practice today to uh, grill JC on parenting teenagers. So, hello. Good morning. Jean-Claude, JC, you, you said you don't mind which I call you, so I shall Absolutely. just sort of flit in and out. Um, I love the familiarity already. <laughs> we're just going to be like, JC, I'll just be calling you Jay by the yeah. end of this. <laughs> Why not? Um, when I was researching for our interview, I very quickly came across other people's descriptions um, of you as a person and um, as a therapist. And that was through articles and also testimonials. Um, and the words that came up over and over again to describe you um, and also the experience that people had having therapy with you were um, warm, wise, nurturing, straight talking. You've warned me that you're quite blunt um, and also non-judgmental. And uh, the overwhelming feeling I have is that you really get what it makes what what it, what it is that makes us human. So your personality uh, you know, clearly plays a big part in what makes you such a highly regarded therapist. But can you tell us, first of all, how you came to be one? Because that's not how you started out, is it? That's correct. I mean, I think the reason why I became a therapist started very early on in life. Um, I come from a very abusive background, uh, emotionally, physically and sexually. And sort of by the age of 11, I read my first book on psychology, which was The Prodigious Adventures of Psychology by Pierre Dacot. And I was absolutely fascinated by the powers of the mind because I had run away the first time from home at the age of nine and lived on the streets and the second time at 11 and a half. And so um, it was very interesting for me what the mind was capable of. And so when I said at home that I wanted to um, become a psychiatrist, uh, they told me that um, I shouldn't study for something to make me more crazy than I already was. <laughs> and so I uh, then had a choice on what to do. Um, and it could be either engineering or uh, economics. And I chose economics 
and became very successful in the city. But, you know, having come from that background, I obviously suffered a lot uh, of emotional trauma. And then I decided to do therapy for myself uh, when I was 28. And I did quite intensive therapy, um, two hours of individual therapy and uh, six hours of group therapy a week. Wow. And I did that for four and a half years. Wow. It was, I was very successful in business, uh, whether it was, you know, putting billion dollar companies on NASDAQ, buying the Mir space station, doing the largest telecommunications deals in Russia. I was very successful, but I felt that I was always a fraud. Mm. I was always not in the right place, despite however successful I was. And sitting at a dinner in Athens, uh, I met this amazing psychiatrist who told me quite bluntly over the table that she didn't understand what I was doing in business and that I should be, I was a born therapist. And that changed my career overnight, really, uh, that I decided to go and train. And I trained uh, with her and I studied and I did all what needed to be done. And then I worked in the practice there. And I came to London in 2003 to set up my own practice. Right. Here. Okay. And so for me, it was a question of what is possible in life? How can we become the best version of ourselves? And I was in a way very fortunate, despite the very unfortunate beginnings in my life, that I was able to use all that experience to, one, understand other people, yeah. understand suffering, yeah. understand yeah. abuse, and understand that there is a way out. Mm. And I wanted to embody that and manifest. And I think that part of the reason why I am, if I may say that, as successful as I am, is that people, when they come to visit us, they can feel the authenticity mm, yeah. uh, of understanding where they are. Yeah. I mean, I think if you have been through something and you sit in front of someone and you see genuine distress and suffering and you can empathize and be there with them mm -hmm. and see where they can get to uh, through their experience, it instills a lot of confidence yeah. and a lot of trust. Yeah. And I think one of the most important things is that to create a safe intimacy in the therapy room where people can then unfold and you can help them become the best version of themselves. Yeah, that's human connection on a really basic level, isn't it? You know, that, that, But that, isn't you... that what we all look for? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the most important thing for me is human connection. Mm. Because without it, we are completely in our heads. And I've always had the very strong belief that a healthy lifestyle is where the mind and the heart are connected. Yeah. You know, and I have this wonderful cartoon, which I have in my practice in Bali, which is a heart and a um, brain mm. walking together hand in hand. And it says, you and I need to go to a place somewhere quiet where we can discuss and agree on things. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, very often in my practice, I find that people that come to see me are in their heads, totally mm. and completely in their heads. They and believe so, every thought they have and worship it absolutely. rather than being able to detach from it. And, and that's how they limit themselves mm -hmm. all the time. And so when I teach them, you know, how to be more in their hearts and work with both parts, the emotion and the intellectual, then you know, you see real change happening. Mm. So this is a very long-winded way of saying no, <laughs> how no. I got to... I'm just so glad you sat next to her, that, that lady at that dinner. Yeah. You could have sat next to anybody. So 
I was going to ask you about the Bali retreat and what your aim is as regards for the experience for people who who come there. Uh, but I suppose you've sort of answered that in in a way. But um, could you just explain a little bit about the Bali retreat? A bit? Definitely. I mean. I think it's very important that I wanted to create out of the practice I had in London where I was seeing 45 to 55 people a week. What was very important, what I was seeing, that people coming once a week for one hour of therapy was sometimes not enough because they were 23 hours and six days out there in the world coping, trying to survive and trying to make sense of what was happening for them. So I decided very early on in my practice that I wanted to create a retreat, but it took me a long time to get there, to find the right place, to find the right shape, feeling that I wanted to give. And in 2015, I started with that. And the main principle of it is very, very simple. It's the same as what we do in the practice in London, but in a more intense way. And I wanted people to have the ability to be somewhere safe. So from the moment that they walk to the door, that they had the same feeling as if they come to the practice in London, which is it feels like they're in a womb and they're safe and they're held and they're contained and, you know, everything is fine and okay, whatever happens. And when they walk into the retreat in Bali, they get that feeling, but amplified because they are there 24-7. And what we teach primarily, both in the practice in London and in Bali, is for how can people learn to contain themselves and become the best version of themselves? And our motto is be who you are. And how do you get there to mm. being who you are? And for us, our, our philosophy, our therapy is that we teach people the adult version of them today to become good parents to the inner child inside mm. them while simultaneously learning to manage their internal critic which is that voice that is chirping on your ear that tells you that you're not good enough, you shouldn't have done it, you should have done that, you're not wearing the right thing, look at your hair. You know, that voice that we all know, (laughs) you know, that just chirps away in our ear. right now? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, the wonderful thing is that when people get that concept and they start getting in touch with the inner child, because I think that all our trauma, all our fear, all our anger, fear and anger for me are secondary emotions and they are covering something that we dare not talk about which is hurt Mm. because we cannot show that vulnerability Mm. and going into the subject that we are going to talk about today I think that is particularly prevalent when it comes to parenting teenagers Mm. we are so scared we are so fearful of engaging in dealing because what for me happens is they are having to deal with their own inner child that doesn't know what mm. to deal. And sometimes I find people that come to our practice or come to the place retreats in Bali that intellectually they are their age or beyond their years. And it's fascinating. And then when I ask them, how old are you emotionally? And they look at me and they say, um, well, I'm not quite sure I understand your question. And I go, well, you know, intellectually, you are older than your age, as you say, but emotionally, how old do you think you are? And very often with men, I I ask the question, since you don't know, if I asked your wife or your partner, what would they say? Mm. And they go, oh, well, very easy, 17 or 15, (laughs) you know? And so it's a very interesting concept Mm. when you have this, you know, 42 or 45-year-old intellectual person with the mentality of a 15 or 17-year-old, and it can be both men or women. It doesn't, you know, it's not gender specific. And so 
what's very interesting is when you have that differential, the person opposite them is expecting someone to interact with them, both on an intellectual mm -hmm. and emotional level at that age. Yeah. But what do you do when you have a 42-year intellectual person that can reason it well and rationalize it way out of everything? But emotionally, you're dealing with a teenager standing in front of you mm -hmm. and you have children with that mm -hmm. person. Yeah. What do you do? That creates a very big conflict already at the level of parents, but also in the workspace, also mm -hmm. in marriages. You know? it, it seeps into every area of your life, mm, doesn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. How many times have we worked with people that you think, oh my God, I mean, they're, they're a child. Yes, mm. nightmare. Absolutely. Yeah. But intellectually, they can, they can write the best PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and imagine that uh, regarding our subject of today, imagine that in the home with parenting. Yeah. How are you going to tell a teenager what to do when you yourself are still at that stage? At that same level and the teenager is looking for to be held yeah. and is looking to be counseled and, and talked to in a way that, you know, they can move forward. God, I know. You can it's... see, can't you, yeah. why? And you're just describing those those. Um, all those events coming together and it, that's why it's just a hot house and just uh, so stressful it's a for tinder everyone. Box. Yeah. Mm. It's a total tinderbox. And I can also understand the parents mm. that are feeling, you know, lost and, you know, because it's not their fault no. that they were emotionally stunted at a particular age. Mm. But what we are doing, because we are recreating a trauma in the teenager, we're just repeating the cycle. The cycle. Yeah. yeah generation after generation after generation. Mm. And that is something in my own limited way I would like very much to help with. It's interesting, isn't it? I, obviously, obviously, I'm, I'm not an expert. I just have my own human experience on this planet. But it's like you were saying before when we got here, it, it's... It, we don't want to scaremonger anybody. Obviously, these these are just circumstances that happen behind every front door. But you were saying before, and it's so simple. The, the key to unravelling this, I mean, it's hard work, it's work, but it's... It, it, it's, it's communication is... and love. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, and I don't think even the most hardened criminal, you know, when you show love, they become softer. Mm -hmm. They might not become, you know, total lambs, but when you show genuine compassion. love, compassion, yeah. empathy, understanding, you know, they become softer. And... You know, it's very difficult for me to imagine that your own child, your own teenager, you know, how did they come to the stage where you find it very difficult to mm. be with them? You know, this was not a process that happened overnight. You know, very often, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, they are already there. Yeah, our audience now, let's assume that there's no point saying to them, well, you should have made these sowed these seeds when they were children let's just assume <laughs> that they're that, you know that they're already they're just there you know they've they've you know loused up somehow maybe in some ways like we all have you know i'm, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way there are no perfect parents <laughs> mm -hmm. no they're no. just human parents you know yeah. and we will all make mistakes yeah you know whether we like it or not even with the best intentions and you can read every book on parenting we will still make mistakes because that is part of the learning experience mm. and also part of the beauty because you know i think that a parent that doesn't make mistakes is terribly boring how jc do you switch it up when things have kind of the the, the pressure cooker has gone, maybe something's kicked, I mean, it, doors slammed, maybe there's some event that happens. How do you stage your own 
intervention. I very often counsel parents just to knock on their children's bedroom door, ask permission to go inside, even if it takes you to knock 10, 15, 17, 20 times. Go and sit down in the room and don't say anything. Just sit with them and they will rage and they will scream and they will shout and they will be silent and they will test you in every way possible. But eventually they melt because what children want, no matter what age they are, they want 100% of your love. Mm. They want 100% of your attention. They want 100% of your energy. And that's where in families things sometimes go very wrong because very often children feel that between siblings the attention is so divided that the only way that they can get the attention of the parent is through negative attention. Right. And I always counsel parents, we know that the energy is there. Why don't we try to switch it around from negative attention to positive attention? And you do that through a reward system. So when the child behaves negatively, you don't interact. But when the child behaves positively, seeking the attention, you go all out. What if you've got three children and one of them is the one that is always kicking off? And how do you... Because it would be very easy, I would imagine, to be focusing all of your time on that child that is always kicking off, always causing tension and friction in the house. Have you got a couple of other kids that are quite sort of just getting on with it, not, you know, quite sort of low maintenance, for want of a better word? What things would you need to be watching out for there? The child you are referring to that is kicking off and slamming doors mm -hmm. is one with an internal conflict and is in a lot of pain. Right. Now, if that child had anything physical wrong with it, the entire family would rally around, yeah, would take course. them to the doctor, yeah, to the hospital. Yeah. They would be around them. There would be nothing that is too much in order to bring them back to normal, physical, good health. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to mental health, everything is seen as problematic. Yeah. You know, and people are so scared of it that they prefer to do nothing rather than do something. Imagine if a child had a, a pain with a broken leg or a broken arm. Nobody would say, just let him go to his room and <laughs> deal with it. But that child mm. is in pain. Mm. That child is, has a traumatic wound. And you might say, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a mental health worker. No, but you are still the parent. Mm. And for me, what I did with my own children, in those moments, I always saw them as if they were very little and they were fighting against something that they couldn't deal with. Mm. And it was not up to me to give them advice, but I wanted them to know that I was there for them. And I very often said to my children, listen, to tell you the truth, I don't know what to do. Right. I really don't know what to do. I have no idea what to do, but I just want you to know that I'm here. I have always loved you. I love you and I will always love you. And maybe we can figure out a way together to go forward. That's a good place to start, mm. isn't it? I Just mean, being completely honest. Earlier you were talking about some parents being scared of the confrontation that might happen. And so, but, but actually, if you put it like that, like I, I don't have all the answers, but I love you, what 
you know, really how much confrontation can come from yeah. that. And, Not, and yeah. I think the most important thing, Louise, is when you tell your children, I have always loved you, mm. I love you, and I will mm. always mm. love you. Mm. Those, for me, are the most magical, impressive words to a child because that's what they want to hear. Yeah. I'd like to move on to the questions that we've been sent, um, and lots of them were very similar, so I've chosen the ones that echo what the other ones were, were asking. Um, one of them was, how can we set boundaries when they are met with anger and create huge conflict? I think what we should always remember as us, as the parents, because we're of the age that we are most probably, most of us are parents, is to remember that when there's met with so much anger and so much pushback, that anger for me is always a secondary emotion. So it means that there is a lot of hurt, hurt underneath yeah. there. Now, if you looked at your child from a place where you know they are hurting, would you still react in the same way as when they manifested through anger? Right. Just like for me, the two emotions, secondary emotions that represent hurt are anxiety and anger. How would you react if your child displayed anxiety? Mm. You would have a very different reaction. Mm. Yet at the same time, they're expressing their hurt. So I suppose it comes back to communication. So I read that as if somebody were to, let's say you say to your teenager, um, right, you have to be in bed by 10, you've had a discussion about it, everyone's agreed, yet you're going to start heading up the stairs at quarter to 10, we've had a nice discussion in a non sort of... Um, Violent way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it comes to it and every night you're going, come on, you're supposed to be getting ready for bed, you're supposed to be getting ready for bed and they kick off and get, you know... But um, I, I think you forgot to mention so in that negotiation that you were talking about. Mm. So... Were there any, when you set the boundaries... Have you discussed with the child and agreed what the consequences are going to be? Right. Okay. Because I think it's one thing to agree with them boundaries. Right. But choose together the consequences because then the child can say very little because in achieving their extending the boundary, yeah. there is a consequence. Right. And I think this is very important. And if you feel that your children are very confrontational, I think it might even be a solution to write it down and you both sign it. Right, okay. Because I think that's very important. And mm. the child has very little because the parent then becomes angry and then sets a punishment or sets a consequence that the child is even going to disagree more with. Yeah. And there's going to be more anger. Okay. And then the parent feels totally lost. For a lot of parents, they set consequences and they start watering them down. Yeah. And the moment you do that, the child has learned Oh, I yeah. can agree to any consequence, mm, yeah. but I can then water it down. Oh, yeah. If you have really challenging children, because some of us as parents, we do have mm. very challenging children. Is there anything wrong with inviting a third person or a professional person yeah. to learn to deal with it? Because, you know, I find this always so anomalous that as parents, we are expected to know what to do at every stage of the development of our child. Who are we? We're just ordinary human beings that are trying to do our best. And would that need to be someone that your your child would need to agree to that? 
What Always. Yeah. Always. Mm. Because this is a family negotiation. You know, how are you going to teach your children to be respectful of someone else's wishes if you don't respect theirs? Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Of course. You know, and they might say no. And I don't want this or I don't want. Okay, in which case, what do you want? I want nothing. But, you know, the thing is that you just keep on asking in a gentle way you don't get you don't lose your temper because that gives him the example that they can lose their temper too because they're they are forgive me for using that term but they are little monkeys Mm. they are going to imitate everything we do because where else are they going to learn from and i think i want to come to a point which is for me always very important in terms of parenting i think that we talk about the hurt that exists in the child But I think it's also very important to talk about the hurt that exists in the parent from their own childhood. Mm. But the wound is exacerbated when the child becomes a teenager. Because before that, the external validation for the child comes from the parents. That's just how it is. But at some point in their development, they change because they want external validation from their peer group Mm. or their friends. And all of a sudden, us as parents become redundant Mm. and it triggers in us the fear of rejection Mm -hmm. and the fear of abandonment and those are two very powerful forces that feed our inner critic with absolute gourmet meals when we feel that we are not necessary we are surplus to requirement and again our children know and sense that in that moment they have 100% of negative attention with us and they go for it and they milk it for everything that it's worth. But the truth is that we're supposed to be the adult, even if intellectually we are 42 and emotionally we are 15, Mm -hmm. we are still required to be the adult in the room. So I hope that through this podcast, for instance, that people start realizing, oh, I mustn't buy into this. I mustn't start competing with my child Mm. in terms of negative attention or anger or shouting or screaming or disruptive behavior because you will never win it. They will always know how to get to you. Mm. They hold the power at that point, don't they? Absolutely. Rest assured that your children always want to feel loved. Mm. They always want to feel that they are important. And I think these very violent reactions is seeking reassurance. They're not setting out to hurt you or to upset you or to make you feel terrible. Your internal critic does that for Mm. you, don't you worry. But what they want is they want to feel loved and cared for and reassured and having your attention and knowing that you're going to be there no matter what. And they're testing you and you have a choice. You either fall in the trap or you are actually the adult in the room even though you might be hurting so badly in that moment because it triggers a lot of stuff inside you. Mm. It might tap into a well that you have already inside you, but your child is not responsible for that. It is your responsibility as the adult to do something about that. Mm. But if you are going to hold your child responsible for tapping into a well that already pre-existed, I'm sorry, you're on the wrong path. Yeah, Mm. of course. Get a grip of yourself. I like that absolute bluntness and straight talking and not sugarcoating anything. (laughs) It's hard, isn't it? Because I'm sitting here as a parent to an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and I know that this episode is about parenting teenagers, Mm. but I think to myself sometimes I kind of 
get ready to go into battle with my eight-year-old yeah. and, and and I'm kind of like I can't lose this one and, and, and then and, I, and I'm scanning forward 10 years <laughs> eight years 10 years and thinking you oh don't God, even have to... to go that far four to five yeah. okay and you'll be there like this evening <laughs> I don't even need to go that far like uh, uh, if I, if I carry on in that mindset, I'm imagining I'm, I've not set the foundations very well for being able to have a... But you should maybe ask yourself, how comes I, I'm doing setting these foundations? Mm. And ask yourself, what foundations do I want to set? What kind of a mother do I want to be to my children when they are 10, when they are 12, when they are 14? And if I think about it, you know, I remember my son, my older son, one day saying to me, my dad is my best friend. And I said, I certainly hope not. And he was very offended because it was in front of his friends. Yeah. You know, and he said, how could you embarrass me like that? And I said, well, think about it. When you were seven, Frank Lee was your best friend. When you were 11, Jan Bress was your best friend. When you were 14, Bob was your best friend. Mm-hmm. When you were 19, Alain was your best friend. I'm your dad, and I'm always going to remain your dad. Yeah. I'm your parent. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So I think this whole notion of, as a parent, being the best friend, I'm not entirely sure that that is a correct way no. to see your relationship with your mm-hmm. child, because they will only ever have one mother and one mm-hmm. father, unless they are step-parents, and that's a whole other yeah. uh, story. <laughs> but, you know, it's really very important that they have that particular relationship. But for the parent, I think it's extremely important that they actually define themselves what kind of a parent they want to be. If you could say, by the time my children are what, eight and 12, I would like to be the type of mother that, you know, like this. And so I'm going to work on myself Mm. to be that time. But even with teenagers, what kind of parent do you want to be when they are 18? Yeah. What kind of parent, what kind of relationship do you want to have with them when they are 22? And, you know, it's never too late. No. It's never too late. Because children will respond amazingly well when they see that you want to make changes Mm. in order to have a better relationship with them. Never expect miracles overnight because obviously they will have had a long history of dysfunctional behavior, Mm. perhaps in the family, or antagonistic behavior, because every family has stories. Mm. So I think it's very important that we are aware of that. I'm hanging on JC's every word, but it's I almost like there's a crane outside God, who's I determined the crane, for, I'm just listening for us like not that. to improve our relationship <laughs> with our children. <laughs> a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I've got some other questions here. Somebody wrote in um, quite a long one. How can I tackle school college refusal? It's impossible to physically make a six foot teenage boy get out of bed if he's point blank refusing. Been to the school, tried everything. There's no bullying at school. He just hates going and knows that there's nothing she can do about it. What happened to the bucket of ice-cold water? Don't you think? (laughs) If nothing else works, Mm. you need to shock their system. Mm. I'm sorry if that sounds maybe offensive to some people. But but do it with compassion and love. (laughs) Tip that bucket on their their sleeping heads with compassion. I mean, the thing is that, you know, sometimes you need to shock your children. You know, I mean, what do you do with children that start using drugs. Well, that was another question. Um, somebody was uh, say, also saying about they know that their daughter is smoking a lot of weed, alcohol, experimenting with other drugs, determined to try anything and everything. So, Well, I would say, uh, write to a rehab centre and say, look, I'm facing this problem. Can I come in with my daughter and let them talk to people that are actually trying to get off it and what has happened to them? Because I think that everything happens so much in a vacuum that people do not experience reality anymore. It becomes all such an intellectual concept. But if you put a 13 or 14 year old in front of teenagers Mm -hmm. that are in rehab Mm -hmm. and that they can see what is happening to them, and that could be them, then they have a choice. They have a choice of, do I want to be that? And they can say, oh, this will never happen to me. That's what all of these young people said Mm -hmm. in their time. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to experience that. I mean, I never said to my children that they couldn't use drugs. I never did. But I did bore them to death Mm -hmm. with telling them what each drug would do to their nervous system, to their parasympathetic nervous system, to their sympathetic nervous system, to, to the capillaries, skin, to, to, their, their to their hair, to their <laughs> cardiovascular system, to their brain, you know, and they were absolutely bored to death. There's no point in saying, don't do it, because oh. that will just instigate them to yeah. do more. If you have a child that is, you know, trying everything, great, try, but can I just show you yeah. where you can get to? And I think you need to experience that because now you're not making an informed choice. You're just making a choice that you don't even know what the consequences could be of your choices. That's like really simple. It's not complicated. It's not true. But why don't we think of that in the moment? Because we're just eaten up with our own, like, that just triggers everything. You know, they're taking drugs. We're scared. We're anxious. We're, you know. Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, Louise, that we are consumed by fear. 
Right. And when we are consumed by fear, there's very little space or very little place for love. Conversely, when there is love, there's very little space for fear. Right. And I think we have to be very aware of that. Which position? For me, there are only two positions in life: fear and love. So whenever I'm in a position of fear, I try to go into a position of love because the perspective comes becomes very different. That's why I use the example: if you see your angry teenager stomping off, slamming doors, screaming and shouting, and of course that is the image that you receive. And that your amygdala and your limbic system receives in your brain. But if you could stop for a moment, in that moment, because that triggers your fear response, fight or flight. But if you could stop yourself and think for a moment, my child is in terrible pain, would you still have the same reaction? Would you still want to scream and shout and punish them? When you think my child is in such pain, hurting so much, mm. am I still going to shout at him? Am I still going mm. to punish him? Or what do I want to do as the parent? Do I just want to be there and hold them? Which, of course, I wouldn't advise with a teenager that is, you know, in full-fledged <laughs> thing. But just that's why I made the example of sitting in the room mm. that they know you are there. It is all quite simple, really, isn't it? But but it's understanding it, and you know, and then putting it putting it in action. Well, I hope through your podcast, people will mm. listen and actually yeah. stop for a moment and say, "Wow, yes. I never knew that." Actually, when my child is behaving like that, it's actually their way of expressing hurt and vulnerability, and I can actually tailor my response as the adult in the room, as the parent, in order for them you know, to respond to what their real need is. They might not even know it themselves. No. No. You know? But if I respond in a different way, instead of mirroring them, then I might get a different reaction. Yeah, yeah. I had um, a few people asking about concerns around um, their teenagers eating, you know, not eating enough, body image. In general, what we see in eating disorders, it is because their minds get overwhelmed and it's a way of taking back control. Right. And we should remember that. If my advice would always be to any parent, the moment that you suspect that there might be an issue regarding food, whether it's anorexia or bulimia, would be please go and see a professional. Mm, you are yeah. not equipped as a parent to deal with this. No amount of restricting, bullying, whatever it is that you're cajoling that you're going to do is going to help. It is a terrible beast that goes on into the minds. Of course, social media and peer group pressure plays a very big role in it. But overall, the child is so overwhelmed in their minds. They're so flooded by all the thoughts that they have that the only way to take control back is either through restricting food or self-harming. Mm -hmm. And it's always a way of numbing the pain. Self-harming is numbing the pain. Uh, eating issues are to 
get back into control because that's the only thing that you can control not to eat yeah or restricting or getting rid purging the food mm. so it's always about the control mechanism right so your advice is don't let that slide you need nip it to, in the bud yeah as, you know? as early as possible yeah yeah you know but what about general girls just being very um not just girls boys as well they're looking on instagram there's images that they're seeing that are, are you know, really unrealistic but put a lot of pressure on them to look a cert certain way act a certain way how would you suggest counteracting that I would always suggest the same thing, communication yeah, and love. I knew you were going to say because, that. Because, <laughs> you know, the child is obviously looking for something. Searching out, yeah. Searching for something that they don't have. Mm. And they need a compensatory mechanism for the hurt that they're feeling inside of the lack of. Mm. You know, one of the very interesting things is that... Um, most addicts start their addictions in teenage life right. because they learn to use something in order to numb the pain and something that they can derive pleasure from, be that alcohol, drugs, gambling, internet, sex and love, whatever it is. But they learn that. And so our whole mechanism in the present day world is to treat the addiction which I think is about the wrongest formula that there can be, mm -hmm. because we are not prepared to look at the emotional trauma that lies underneath. And part of the success of our clinic in London and in Bali is that we always try to get to the root cause, because then the symptoms fall away, right. or they become much easier to handle. And I would say the same thing as a parent. Don't look at the anger. Mm -hmm. Don't look at the anxiety. Look at their secondary emotions. Look at the hurt underneath. What is your child hurting from? And why do they feel too vulnerable to express their hurt or their vulnerability? How did you teach them? Did you tell them that when they were angry, when they were small, you know, look at you, you can't be angry, you look ugly, that's horrible, you know? Children are going to be angry. Mm -hmm. They are going to express frustration. Let them, you know? And even if you didn't do that when they were four or five, let them do it when they are 12, 13, mm. 14, 15. It's never too late. No. And okay. children will respond very well. Even teenagers, even young adults, they will respond very well. I'm thinking probably actually all of us respond well to <laughs> love and... Kindness and understanding and even compassion. Us, even us old yeah. carcasses. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> know. Crones. <laughs> The next thing I wanted to ask was about step-parenting. What somebody has sent here is step-parenting help. So tricky, um, especially at this age, it was uh, teenagers. Um, and I expect for the, for the next few years I have to come, especially with a toxic ex. Not all decision-making is mine. There's lots of, lots of things there. So Oh, there's to eat and to drink in that, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, the, I, I think the problem here becomes more complicated because there are many facets to it. That, first of all, you, if there are toxic exes involved, they will fight you through the children. Mm. And the children, 
imagine become the punch bags and the negotiators and the middlemen and the brokers between the adults who already most probably don't know how to behave with their toxic excess. They most probably have this huge differential between the intellectual age and the emotional age. And then they are using the children. And if they, that triggers the well inside you that was installed through your own childhood and your the parenting that you received. I mean, it, it is just impossible. Yeah. And I think we need to be able to s stand still, take a step back and remember, no matter what the toxic exes are doing, this is not the child's fault that there are toxic exes involved. And we should always remember that we are holding these precious lives in a stewardship mm. for a number of years. And what is the best thing that we can do? Are we going to fight back the toxic ex through the child? Because then we're just as bad as the other side. Or are we going to remember that these are very vulnerable, very tender, very fragile young people that we have brought into this world? and that we carry a responsibility for, and that we should try, if we, even if we don't succeed, but at least try to overcome the fact of what our own wells are and the toxic excess and think of the position of the child in this and always go by that principle, mm. that we have a temporary guardianship and we choose what kind of human beings we make out of them. Mm -hmm. And again, it's about love and communication. And I may say something very dicey now for many people, mm -hmm. because we so often expect with children that if we do something for them, that they're going to repay our kindness. But for me, that's an investment. If we really act out of love, then we do what we do because that's what we want to do. And we do not expect any returns. I'm always so humbled and so honored that people would come to me to divulge all their inner turmoil mm. that is going on. So I'm extremely respectful of that for a start. And then to be able to work with someone, because I always say the same thing, I'm only ever the technician. You are the one coming here. You are the one that is making that commitment. You are the one doing the work. You are the one that is making the change. I'm only helping you, mm. either peeling off the layers of shit that have mm. been installed mm. over the years, or I'm helping you to bring out the person that you really want to be. So it has actually very little to do with me. Yes, I might be helpful and instrumental in what they are doing, but at the end of the day... You can't do it for them, can you? Exactly no. that. So, but you can facilitate that learning, that understanding, yes. so that they can... Which is actually very simple, Yeah. as you've heard today. Mm -hmm. It is a very simple process. And I re repeat, for me, for any parent, I would always ask of them, how are you with yourself? How do you parent yourself? Because no one can give you back your youth. No. That's gone. Mm. But perhaps I can teach you to be a better parent to yourself, mm -hmm. learning to manage your inner critic. And this way, you will automatically become a better parent to your children because it's a ripple effect. Yeah. yeah.
I feel like we've only scratched the surface and of course the dynamics are distinct to each family and to each individual involved but it may be that just one person hears something that they needed to hear today and connects with that so thank you so much for your time thank you for giving me the opportunity to share the little I know the, the little you know <laughs> <laughs> and all John Claude's uh, details will be on the show notes along with other resources um, mentioned here today so please please take five minutes to rate and review the podcast and get in touch with me or Amy via social media all our details are in the show notes too thank you John Claude thank, thank you, you. made by darkhorsedigital.co.uk shooting live streaming and podcast production Hello, this is Rich Wilson, host of the podcast Insane in the Membrane, where we talk to funny and interesting people about men's mental health. People like James Acaster. Because we won't talk about emotions because we think that's bad. We won't talk about feelings because that's bad. So they've, they've had to rebrand it and go, it's mental health. You're, oh, oh, talk, oh, yeah. Gotcha. Mental. Our, our brains are so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty clever. Uh, like, like, okay, I'll get, I'll get into my mental health. Yeah, that's it. I like puzzles. <laughs> and Rob Beckett. I've never even done a school play. <laughs> I did some open mic gigs. Uh, Did the Edinburgh Fringe, got on, somehow got on the telly. And I'm on the other side of the world in the jungle doing nights. <laughs> following out and deck. People like Mark Steele. I used to be in a home and I, I didn't get on with me. My, my dad was in a, a asylum by then. I suppose we ought to talk about that, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, given the premise of the, the podcast. Search Insane in the Membrane from wherever you get your podcasts. Brand new episodes every Thursday at 6pm. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.